This is the Blatcast, a sometimes fast-paced but usually meandering look at the world. And now, here's Christian Blatt. Welcome to the Blatcast. Today is Monday, September 27th, 2021, and you're in for a full week of brand new Blackcast episodes. So every day this week, you're going to get some great music-related episodes, including a whole bunch of musician interviews that I did over the summer. Now, those conversations have been available on the Blackcast YouTube channel, but I assure you that every single one of them uh, will be appearing on this, the audio version of the Blackcast, for the very first time ever, ever, ever. Uh, a few of them are return guests who've been on previously, but these will be new conversations with everyone, including a brand new conversation with today's guest. Joining me now is Ture, who has a new book called Nothing Compares to You, An Oral History of Prince. Ture, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate thanks it. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. So uh, I wanted to jump right into a statement you made about Prince in the book, and I wanted you to elaborate on this. Your quote was, he had everything a budding rock star needed, a specific vivid dream, mountains of determination, painful inner wounds he was trying to heal and a surreal work ethic. And if, if anything summarizes the, I don't know, it's like 270 pages. If anything summarizes that entirety of 270 pages, it's those words right there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think everybody who becomes a rock, like a super level rock star, they have like something that they're trying to like avoid. They're trying to fill or some scar. I think about like, you know, Madonna losing her mother when she was really young, uh, you know, you know, like Michael Jackson, like basically like losing his childhood when he's really young. Like there's some thing that they're trying to deal with. And we may not always know what that is. Um, but Prince felt like his parents abandoned him and he wanted to get back at them. He wanted to show them that he was an important and valuable person and that they were wrong for letting him go. Um, when he literally left their house, when he was his mother's house, when he's about 11, then his father's house gets kicked out of his father's house when he's about 12. Um, so there's that. And then, you know, everything else. I mean, like there's this, this incredible work ethic. People from his early teens talked about you know, we would do rehearsals, six, eight, 10 hours playing music. He would not take breaks. If we went outside to get a drink or smoke a joint, he would just stay, you know, at the drum kit or on the guitar or whatever it was, bass and just keep playing. Um, and then when he finished, when we finished our rehearsal, he would go home and launch into his own rehearsal. And so it was just this constant flow of rehearsing, writing. He and Andre Simone used to have contests where like you know you go upstairs and i'll go downstairs and see who, who can write how many songs in 30 minutes and then come back to the kitchen and like compare notes and see and you know morris day talks about prince knocking on the door of his house because morris day had a four track recorder and prince did not so you know midnight 1 a.m 3 a.m i gotta get in to record this song that i just thought of so it's just throughout the teens the incredible work ethic that we would see in the 20s and hear a little bit more about um, was already there. And by the 20s, you know, when he's got, you know, some money and some budget, he's doing 24-hour sessions, 48-hour sessions, 72-hour sessions were not unheard of. And I'm talking about, like, he's not sleeping during this time. He goes in the studio, he starts a song, he's going to finish the song. He might do two songs in a session. 
but that means that we're going to be there for 48 hours or 24 hours or whatever it is. He's playing everything. The execution was always perfect. They were never waiting for him to like figure out how to play the line or even like figure out like, what do I want this to be? He's like, he knew what he wanted. He knew how to play it. He's waiting for the tapes to rewind. Like that was his, his bet noir. It takes too long for the tapes to rewind so that I can start to play the next part. Oh, how do we make these tapes go faster? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, so, I mean, this is sort of like all the pieces of him. One of his managers talked about, you know, he's like Michael Jordan in that you had the most talent and the most drive. And, you know, when you combine those two things, you get, you know, one of these once in a generation, once in a century superstars. Yeah, and I, I think that uh, you know you need to be that level of uh, determination and and drive uh, obviously to succeed. But it, it's interesting because as you read through the book, it, it's so clear that on so many levels, the only way that he could interact with people was to talk about music. So even when it is a more casual moment, you know, they talk about playing a softball game and then you know, he's got uh, this conversation at first base and then he's in second base. And it's like, you know, he's, he doesn't really unplug, but it's also, you know, I think anybody who's even casually aware of Prince knows how many instruments he played. And the term genius, I think gets thrown around too easily, but not in the sense of who this guy was and what he was capable of doing. And I think when you're a genius, that's the only time you think of things like he would want to take tapes of music he would make and listen to it on a shitty car stereo because most people don't have a great stereo. And if it didn't sound right there, then there was something he would have to do. And I don't know. I mean, I'm sure other musicians might have thought about it, but you don't hear about that, you know, and just talk a little bit about the insight in terms of a guy whose mind works that way. It's like, yeah, not everybody's going to have these nice headphones in a big studio to listen to how great this sounds. Yeah, no, he was definitely really thoughtful about what is going to be the listener experience and thinking about, you know, can I go out to, you know, Jill Jones's car and, and listen to the mixes through her crappy car stereo speakers? Like, that was really thoughtful in terms of, like, you know, let me meet the listener, the consumer, where they are going to be. Um, you know, I think, you know, if you go into a recording studio... You have top-of-the-line speakers that are blasting really loud. They're perfectly separated. They're perfectly, you know, equalized and all this stuff. And, like, that is not the experience that most consumers are going to have, right? So, you know, but, I mean, to what you're saying, the softball game, like, yeah, he was really unable and unwilling, but really unable to have significant conversations beyond music he was not interested in and he was just it was just not happening and i think part of what happened is that you know he's so driven which we already talked about to become a musician that he's completely focused on this and when he leaves his parents home he goes to live with this woman uh, bernadette anderson who's andre simone's mother and people from the area say you know this was like you know the most maternal loving person you could imagine and if you knew the area and the people of the area, you would not be surprised that somebody who's, you know, having a rough time at age 13 would end up in her home, right? She was like a second mother. She didn't have any other fostery kids, but she was like a second mother to many, many other people. Jerome talked about her as like a second mother to him and many others. And Bernadette is this wonderful, loving 
amazing person who provides Prince with a lot of the original initial encouragement when he's first writing songs, playing them in her kitchen. And she's that 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 maternal ear that's like, this is great. Keep going. Who knows if these songs were great? You know, like when your kid comes home with a crappy painting, you're like, this is amazing. I love it. And you got to put it on the wall, no matter what it looks like. It's got to go right up there. Yeah, you put it on the wall and the kid feels encouraged and seen. And, you know, she was doing that for him where Prince's mother and father were not then doing that. So she's providing this initial bridge where like you can go and try your creativity. There is somebody here who will give you encouragement. Yeah. And one of the. At the same time, she had six children and was divorced and was pursuing an advanced degree throughout Prince's teenage years while while he's living in her basement. It doesn't sound to me like she had a ton of time to lord over him the way most mothers lord over children and like making sure you're eating your vegetables or you're brushing your teeth or you're doing all the little things. She was probably, I imagine she was probably like, uh, you know, I love you. I'm providing a home for you. I'm doing the best I can, but I am, I am busy, you know, and I'm not ever saying no to you, but I have to say yes to my six children and my, you know, the, the, you know, the needs of my advanced degree in social work and all those other things. So this means Prince had a lot of free time to do and develop as he wished. And he wanted to be obsessed with music. He was, and I imagine if he'd had a more traditional structure, he might have had a mom who was like, "No, you got to go to the dance. You got to go. He got to do some of these basic things just to learn basic social interaction. That's so much what our teens are about: how to interact with other people. And you, you know, you have your failures and your successes with your your clique of boys and girls, the girlfriends and boyfriends, whatever. You know, this is where you start to learn the social interaction that means so much in our twenties and thirties. He's eschewing all of that. If we're not playing music, I don't care. I'm not in, I'm not here for it. Um, he played basketball a little bit. You know, he was clearly good. He was very good at that. And they enjoyed doing that. But like, really like 99% of his time is on music. So when he gets to his 20s and 30s, he really doesn't know how to or desire to interact with people beyond doing it through music. So this is really the, gl- the guy who was far more comfortable standing on a stage in front of 100,000 people than he was one-on-one talking with you or I, and especially if we weren't going to talk about music. So that 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 split within him really defines a lot of his life. Yeah, and what you were saying earlier about sort of the, the way that he wanted to kind of stick it to his parents and show them, you know, it was, uh, it's apparent that it's more so with his mother, you know, I was reading that it took him a long time before he actually felt like he would buy his mom a house. And it made me think of comments over the last month that Quentin Tarantino made that to this day, he still won't buy his mom a house because she didn't support him. And, you know, they, there, you know, you mentioned Michael Jackson, there are so many creative people that it's like, oh yeah, we, we don't forget <laughs> that maybe you weren't there for us. Uh, and, you know, you talk about things like her being invited the premiere of Purple Rain and and his first wedding and stuff like that. But it's mostly just to be like, well, look what I did with myself. And I thought it was interesting as you talk about he had dinner with Michael Jackson, Prince did. And the first thing Michael Jackson says, do your parents ask for money too? 
And, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, all the time. And, you know, just sort of the offhanded nature of that is, of course, they could relate over that. It made me wonder, you know, Prince is so alone throughout this whole book, his entire life. Why do you think he didn't cultivate friendships with somebody like Michael Jackson, who, you know, the super famous can only relate to other super famous people? Uh, do you, you know, I mean, they, they seem to have had like a professional relationship. But uh, why do you think that he didn't want to put himself out there to somebody that might actually be able to understand what it's like? I mean, I think that it was very important for Prince to be the man, the guy, and to not share the stage and the spotlight. I mean, like, this is a person who was always like Prince and the revolution, right? Like, I think a critical moment that sort of helps understand what you're driving toward, we are the world, right? I mean, like, everyone knew this is going to be a gigantic thing in culture. Every major singer of the time was invited to be part of this massive charity single. You know, you look back at that video, everybody is there. Prince, they begged him to come. Um, they, and he was in town the night of the recording. They told him, we will create a special section of the song where you and Michael are singing to each other so that you are within the group, but still special and apart. No, no, no. I'm not going to be part of a group. He was not a joiner. He was not going to be sort of on an equal plane with other people. He wanted to be special and unique and different. So some sort of friendship collaboration with somebody like Michael Jackson um, would have been hard. He, he was in competition with Michael Jackson. You know, he was in competition with these sort of people. I mean, I, I don't, beside Michael, I don't even know who else would that even be, right? Like, yeah, it's true. I mean, I mean he, it's... Was, he was friends with Miles Davis. You know, he gave a lot of love to Shaka Khan, Joni Mitchell, uh, George Clinton, so I think the older generation, he was definitely like, you know, Larry Graham, love you guys, you know, be part of my world as much uh, as you want. But his contemporaries, you know, extremely competitive and not giving an inch in terms of like, you know, I'm, I'm better than you, I'm going to beat you. But like, to what you're saying, what you were saying, the first part of your question, um, Pepe Willie, who grew up with him and was related to him, a cousin, um, said that the family called him the lonely guy because he was always by himself, you know, holidays, he's not coming, he's like off by himself. And, you know, this is part of the curse, I think, of being um, an entertainer, right? Like a professional entertainer that a lot of, like that you provide the entertainment for other people, but then a lot of time you yourself are alone. And that was definitely his experience. Yeah, and I think there's an interesting anecdote about, you know, when the Purple Rain movie was out and, you know, he was nominated and this idea that he had to, when he was in Los Angeles, he had to court all the famous people, but he was just incredibly uncomfortable uh, in that. So it's like even somebody that you're not directly in competition with, although I guess technically he was because he was suddenly in movies, but just not having anybody to relate with is, is something that's so apparent. And I think that somewhere in the book, and I forget who makes the point, that there is this drive to succeed, but then there's also this idea that if you're rehearsing for five hours, you do a three-hour show, and then you make everybody go do a late-night gig in a club, you're keeping your day busy, 
you know, and you're doing it all in the interest of music. So it, it, you're focused, but you're also like, well, I don't want to be that lonely guy. And I think that uh, the book really explores the sort of the balance of those two things. You know, I mean, when he has the revolution, that seems to be the most where he feels like it's a family. But anything after that, you know, it's just more like the hired hands. And, you know, it's an interesting point that's made in the book that he would seek out green sort of inexperienced people because they know they're hungry and they're not going to create problems. So it's like if you want them to work for 12 hours, they will, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, the bands that he would create, he'd get great players, but people who were on the rise and would value being around Prince so that, yeah, like he was in charge, his law or his rule was not questioned. You know, look, you know, as far as I could ascertain, he paid um, one of the highest rates in terms of what he paid his musicians. But that came with, I expect you to be ready to go all the time. We're in the musical uh, fire department, somebody said, because like, you know, any time Prince could call or send over a bodyguard and it's like, you know, the kid wants you, the boss wants you. And it's like, psh, time to go to the studio, time to go to the um, the rehearsal. You know, I mean, like, my God, who was it? I think it was Bobby. I think it was Bobby Z's wedding um, where Prince called a recording session after the ceremony. Yeah, that that I, I, I read that yesterday. And I, I do remember that, yeah, that it was uh, right, <laughs> right after the wedding. It wasn't, I guess the reception wasn't even over. And it's like, well, we got to go record now. Yeah. Hey, can you imagine? I mean, like they're all family <laughs> at this point, right? Because we've yeah. been like, touring and recording for several, you know, for a few years now, like we're together every day. So, you know, that sort of community, right? Bobby Z gets through the ceremony and then Prince is like, okay, we got to go record a song. And like, seriously, like today, like right now, like we couldn't even wait until like later. You couldn't put it out to tomorrow, like today of all day. No, yes. Now. I mean, even Bobby, like I just got married. Like my wife's like, can we do some things together? Take some pictures, do some cake. Like, nope. The boss said net like, wow, you know, and, um, but I think partly it, it redounds to this is how he connects with the world. Can he tell you I love you and really express that in the way that you or I might be able to? Not really. He said the words I love you sometimes, but to like really have a heartfelt conversation where he's really explaining and accessing his emotions, he couldn't really do that. Um, now, he could write a song that could express to you I love you, I feel you, I see you, I hear you, you know, like you are in my feelings and my my mind in a very deep way, you know, which you or I could do just talking to somebody. Um, so, you know, that song in that particular day may have been, you know, a way of expressing, you know, Bobby, I love you, you know, you guys, I love you, you know. Um, but I mean, you know, it was just, it was a life lived in music and this is part of why his marriages are struggling later on and there's other challenges that are important too but like the notion that music is the most important thing is a decision that was made long ago so if you're his wife you are number two in his life the music is always going to be number one 
Yeah, I think that that's uh, definitely apparent throughout uh, the different uh, stages in his career that the book looks at. You know, there are so many triumphs throughout the course of his career, but I think there are a couple of really important incidents that I think are very defining to the rest of his career where it's very much not a success. And he, he had this uh, overall shyness in terms of performing. And uh, there's, that is on display in this infamously awkward interview with Dick Clark on American Bandstand. So talk about how, like anything, he sits and watches video and studies what other frontmen and lead singers, you know, from everybody from Jim Morrison to Dolly Parton, uh, you know, what they did. So talk a little bit about that and how that was something he really needed to overcome if he was going to become the rock star he wanted to be. I mean, Des Dickerson in particular talks about this in that Prince had the humility to understand what am I not doing to the best of my ability. And if there was something that he lacked, he wasn't like, you know, you know, he had the humility to recognize that and then to zone in and change that weakness into a strength. And I think a lot of people when they're developing as musicians or writers or anything, they might think like, I'm great. You know, I'm great at everything rather than being able to really pick your weaknesses and then and then try to build on them. And he was a great writer. You know, they say he was a really good and prolific writer from his teens. Um, you know, they say he was a really strong player from early on, you know, from his teenage years. Um, but I think the performance part took a little bit longer to come together. And there's a famous performance that they all talk about where, you know, Des Dickerson and Andre Simone were there. So this is early days. This is before the, I think this is, this is the early days. And um, he wasn't very good. And, you know, the two of them, for whatever reason, had a little more performing chops and they were much more comfortable on stage. And he just wasn't. And they, Think of this as a sort of disastrous show. And, you know, Des was like, you know, the guy clearly, you know, went in the zone or went in the hole and like watched and watched and watched and reemerged and was an extraordinary onstage performer. And part of it, we see, you know, some of the some of the rehearsal footage that's leaked out since he passed. He's performing all day long in front of floor to ceiling mirrors. So he's watching himself and what he's doing and how it looks all the time. So, you know, is extremely practiced and choreographed all the little moves and the hands and the head and the eye looks and all these things. He practiced the hell out of those, which is to take nothing away from the genius and the performance. But he was very much performing and practicing this person that he would become. Um, I think we see some other people who in, in, in history, especially in black music history, who sort of like get on the stage and lose themselves. And I think he was a little bit more in the inverse direction in terms of get on stage and like, this is what I have practiced immensely and I'm going to give that to you. But I mean, you know, this is one of the great, great performers of the century. And, you know, for all the people who first saw him or saw him in the early years and were like, oh, here's the son of Jimi Hendrix and James Brown. If you look at little Richard, 
he is truly the son of little Richard. Little Richard and him side by side, it's like, oh my God, this, this is the two. This is the, I mean, like it's, it's uncanny how much he clearly took from little Richard. Yeah. And uh, I think that uh, obviously he begins to understand that, but one of the things you write about is how important the crossover appeal was. He didn't want to be considered a black artist. And when he signed to Warner brothers records, he very clearly sets the tone that he wants to be a pop artist. And that's why I think it's so significant that he gets this opportunity to open for the Rolling Stones here at the Coliseum in LA. So he's in front of 90,000 people who hate him and he doesn't even want to do the second show. And Mick Jagger personally calls him and tells him to, because he flew to Minneapolis, he tell him to come back, do it again. And it, it goes just as badly, but it seems that he very much as humiliating as that was, he really did learn from it though. Didn't he? And, and you know what he needed to do to become the superstar. Well, yeah, the, the Rolling Stones, the failed Rolling Stones opening gigs of, I believe it was 81, um, are really, really important. And the guys, uh, I talked to a ton of people about those shows. There's two shows, a Friday and a Sunday. And like, yeah, Mick and Keith had caught wind of Prince and were like, oh, this guy is good. Like, let's, you know, let's give him a chance. Let's let him come open uh, for us on, on our shows. And, uh, you know... George Thorgood and the Destroyers were also opening. Jay Giles Band was also opening. So, you know, the Stones in the early 80s were still, you know, a, a contemporary band as opposed to a legacy act that they are now. Um, you know, people said that the crowd was relatively what we would now understand as MAGA-ish, you know, and it's a lot of bikers and tough guys and you know, Dirty Mind, Prince was really trying to push the gender envelope. And I think in society in general at that time, men, let's say borrowing from women, was completely edgy and shocking and taboo. So for Prince to go on stage in leg warmers and heels and, you know, like panties and these sort of things and like, you know, uh, you know, stockings, completely shocking. You know, I think nowadays we would be much more accommodating to a man wanting to make those sort of choices. But then it's like, oh my God. And um, that audience in particular was not having it. They threw stuff at him, the Jack Daniels bottles and chicken and like, you know, Cokes and like, it, it was it was physically dangerous for the people on the stage. They were like, we're gonna get hurt. He runs off the stage, doesn't even signal the band to come off the stage. He just runs off the stage, jumps in the limo, goes to the airport, gets in the plane and flies back to Minneapolis. And Mick and Keith have to get on the phone and basically plead with him to come back to do the Sunday show. Um, and he does, and it's more of the same. But he does recognize, number one, this is not my audience, because he tells you know one of the guys in the band, like, Look, when we get to Detroit, it's going to be totally different. This is not the way things normally are. Um, and, and, you know, and in a place like Detroit, with the big black audience, he was always just like crushing it. Um, but he also changes after that show and after that album, uh, you know, and, and people located that failed performance, those two failed performances, as a big part of why he changed. So when you go into 
um, you know, the controversy in Dirty Mind, it's controversy in 1999 era, he's wearing more clothes, he's more clothed, it's a little more traditionally masculine, if, if at least like, you know, like Marie Antoinette era, you know, French, you know, sort of masculine, but like, he's wearing, he's covering his body more when in Dirty Mind he was, now like, this is a person with tons of ideas. So you got to imagine that he was going to, you know, develop an influence into something else. Um, but a couple of, of critical people close to him were like, yeah, those shows were really devastating and really shoved him into the next iteration. Right. But then, of course, the success of that iteration uh, shows that uh, he was willing to recognize that, uh, you know, yeah, he could have continued to you know sell out arenas in Pittsburgh, they talk about in the book and, uh, you know, Detroit, as you mentioned. Uh, but if he wanted to actually be headlining a, a stadium, you know, you do have to win over those people. And then obviously the music was always there, but it, it, the focus on coming up with basically, you know, his signature song really, I mean, for people that don't really know Prince, they know Purple Rain though. And to have that you know, is is really kind of a defining moment of like, well, I have to, you know, have the, it's even in there. I don't think it's a quote from him, but it's like, he needs that song where everybody's going to take up their, hold up their lighters, you know, the way that they did back then. Now it's everybody puts on their cell phone light, but it's the same idea. You know, it's like, oh, this is the one, this is why I brought the lighter, you know? And, you know, just sort of understanding, you know, that the, those are the people, like, you know, the people who throw the bag of chicken at, at Prince, uh, you know, possibly a few years later some of them might have actually bought tickets to see prince you know at the rose bowl or something you know sure it's possible you know i mean it's an, it was an interesting time because i think through dirty mind and controversy he had developed um a large very passionate black audience that that loved him i was i was pretty young at that time and i remember the older boys especially at that time and the older and you know men talking about Prince and just like you know this is a really important, interesting, fascinating artist and we're like sort of hanging on the edge of our seats like what's he going to do next? What's he going to do next? The band sees it happening though because early-ish in like the controversy 1999 era they're touring like the South. And it's like 80 to 90% black audiences. And then as time goes on and more hits seep out and, and he starts to get played more on white radio, um, they get more and more white fans coming to the shows to where they have to go back and do cities again. And now <laughs> the audience is 60, 70% white. Um, I mean, like, you know, folks may not realize or remember um, when radio was a really dominant figure in defining musical taste, radio was quite often extremely segregated. And it would be white rock stations, and then there would be what would often be called like urban stations, which would play, you know, at first, you know, soul and funk, and then later, you know, at first they were generally resistant to rap, and then yeah, sure. they became like a little more accepting of it, or there would be a separate you know, hip hop station, but there was, there were very few artists who could do both, who could be on black and white or rock radio. 
Um, Michael Jackson was one. Um, you know, there really weren't that many. Um, and and Prince aspired to become one. And it took a little bit more time. Michael Jackson was that earlier in his career. It took a little bit more time from for Prince to get there, but he he was aiming for that and he got there. Right. And, and, you know, he didn't want to necessarily be Lionel Richie, whose crossover success was mostly the ballads, you know, and it was like Prince got his rock songs, you know, his his 1999 uh, Little Red Corvette, that stuff was on, you know, top 40, which I feel like the that period of the 80s is why you had the proliferation and the success of top 40 because music was just all of a sudden so different. And it's like, no, but I, I like Van Halen and I also like Prince. You know, and and why that kind of that style of top forty didn't work come the late nineties was because it's like no, I hate that other stuff. You know, and Prince was really good too at creating a visual that let white fans feel welcomed into the group. When he is planning the look of the revolution, he's thinking about Sly and the Family Stone. There's black and white, male and female on the stage. So the audience will feel represented when they look at the stage. So he wanted to make sure there were white people, there were women in the band. Um, And, you know, all the players he chose were extraordinary. You know, Wendy and Lisa especially were extraordinary players with a deep history in music. Um, You know, they'd been playing music since they were, you know, tiny kids. Um, But there was definitely an, a notion of we're going to skip over. It was not a pure meritocracy, which it never could be in music, but we're going to skip over certain people because we are looking for a particular demographic. We want black and white here. So just because you're, you know, the best, whatever basis, whatever that we've seen today or seen in this audition, but you know, we got three black guys, we need a white guy, you know, we're going to go with you. Um, Cause they, you know, and I, and I know, folks talking a lot about women feeling seen and affirmed because Wendy and Lisa were on the stage. I mean, there were so few women who were given big, important roles in rock music in the eighties, you know, or the nineties. And, um, you know, there's some, but very, very few. No, but for the most part, it was a gimmick like the Runaways, you know, where it's like, oh, look, it's the girl group. And, uh, you right. know, and then right. some of them went on to have big solo careers. But that, you know, if in the most part, yeah, you would look at bands and, and the idea that Prince, you know, and it wasn't also just like Prince and the all-female backing band. You know, it was a mixture. You know, it was like clearly he was going for a whole thing. And then that is very clear when they talk about it's like if you set foot out of the hotel, you have to be stage ready at all times. We have to keep this going. And I think that's because obviously, as you talk about in the book, he really understood how MTV changed the way that people took in music because you weren't just hearing it, you needed to see it. And if it's like, oh, that band looks cool, uh, you definitely feel, you feel the song more, you know, because it it stays with you in a better way. He lived the mythology. He was Prince 24 hours a day. There is no, there are no genes. There is no downtime, you know, like this is who I am. And, you know, for people who talked about him in high school and say he was kind of like uh, Pedro from Napoleon Dynamite, you know, <laughs> and said things right. like, you know, where'd that guy get the personality implant? 
it it seems like it's it it perhaps it was very much like Lady Gaga in that you know like Stephanie Germanotta and Gaga are different and at some point Gaga Stephanie said like I'm going to be Gaga 24 hours a day and every time you see me come in out of a hotel or whatever I'm going to be you know like high fashion you know performative look like and that was Prince decades earlier that like you know I am rock star ready 24 hours a day I live here and I don't you know and I don't leave this space um and the rest of the band had to be that way as well. There's a, a very important chunk of the book that I want to talk about, but there's uh, two songs in particular I wanted to touch on just sort of very quickly. One of the things that I learned, and you'll hear this every once in a while about music, but uh, the idea that Prince wrote in every part of 1999 basically overnight because uh, they had free HBO in a hotel room and everybody watched this same documentary about uh, Nostradamus and the end of the world. And, uh, you know, everybody showed up for a rehearsal and he's like, yeah, I got this new song about it. And for that song to be 1999 is, uh, is crazy. But I guess when you record as much as he does and you hear the music in your head and you have to keep at it until it goes away, there's probably a bunch of stories like that for him. You know, some of like his best known songs that uh, you know, he basically start to finish. Maybe just did it overnight, or one of those forty-eight hour sessions you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Well, one thing with um, Purple Rain and a song like nineteen ninety-nine, and there's another song called Seven, um, which are these sort of apocalyptic views. You know, like you know, the, the song is clearly about the world's about to end. And you know, when, you, when I start to integrate, where where does this come from? He's, and like, yeah, part of it is like the 80s Cold War stuff, but like, really, he grows up a Seventh-day Adventist. He becomes a Jehovah's Witness later in life, like in his 40s after the loss of his baby, um, which we can talk a little about. But as a child, he grows up a Seventh-day Adventist. Both his parents are, um, his grandmother is. People, I had somebody talk about just seeing his grandmother take him to collect to uh church and um the seventh day adventists are like the jehovah's witness an end time faith in that they believe the apocalypse is going to come and it is coming very soon part of the thing with the seventh day adventists at some point in the 1850s there was a uh female prophet who was leading them and she said uh you know the end of the world is coming on this day and when it didn't happen she said oh well, it surely is coming soon, so we have to be constantly ready for it to happen. And so they are like constantly ready and thinking about the apocalypse and have to be constantly ready for the apocalypse. Um, so this is this is the real core, the reason why he's making so many songs about the apocalypse and the end of the world because of his religious education that he gets as a youth and that this notion that the world is about to end. Right. So there's obviously a lot of that in his head already. And, uh, you know, just sort of having this to focus on, I guess that absolutely makes sense. Uh, one other song I specifically want to ask you about is this notion that what could possibly be the greatest Prince song is something that we'll never hear. You were talking earlier about how he would use music sometimes as an apology or a way to sort of let his emotions be known because he was so bad at interpersonal interaction. But 
uh, obviously it's it's a fascinating passage in the book and people should definitely check out nothing compares to you an oral history of prince for this story but just spend a moment on this idea that there was this song wally that was so great but uh only i guess he and the the woman who did a lot of his engineering are the only people that ever heard it because he erased it as soon as he was done right yeah susan rogers his longtime engineer talked to me about this story the situation um he had just broken up with uh susanna melvoin wendy's twin sister and um they had a great a great relationship tumultuous but like very passionate she was the first person that he proposed to she was going to star in under the cherry moon and then he flipped that and said like no don't do the movie be my wife and um you know very close you know for a while and then you know things happened you know i mean for him just getting close to somebody was hard and um so it fell apart and susan says like you know so i knew that the relationship was over so i was waiting for a song about it to come or a song that would reflect how he was feeling given the end of this major relationship in his life and um she's like you know finally it came and he goes in and he records this gorgeous ballad that is very emotional and vulnerable and open and real and authentic about like how sad I am. And there's this, it's hard to describe a song that nobody's ever heard, but there's this chorus, which is like, uh, it, it goes into the, the word of malady, you know, like, so he's sort of humming a, humming a sort of a nonsense word and then it comes and it becomes like my malady and he's like you know he's just really singing very honestly in uh, this ballad about how sad he is and you know when you sit back like he really he he, he has some sad songs you know uh, um, you know another lonely Christmas um, you know, incredibly sad song, which, you know, perhaps that's, perhaps that's part of why that's one of my favorite songs of his, because he hardly ever does truly sad songs. But, you know, like he, he, he doesn't really do many of the, the really sad, heartbreaking songs. Like you think about like Michael Jackson, she's out of my life. Like Prince really stayed away from that note, you know, that, that tenor most of the time. And, you know, Wendy Melvoyne, Kind of talked about it like he could do everything except like the really sad song that like you know like musicians talk about like break my back it's like you know break my heart um he really didn't do that and this was like one of the few times when he really did like the heartfelt i'm hurting oh you know open heart surgery ballad that'll make you cry and um he recorded the song and um finished it and Susan was like this is amazing this is beautiful and he said erase it and she's like oh, what and he's like you know put uh, erase it put all the tracks in erase or I'll do it and she's like no like think about it like let's like you know like sleep on it and see how you feel tomorrow because this is not he did not do that he might take it and throw it in the vault but he did not erase things and he insisted like no erase it and she was like, you know, this is hard to do as a person who, you know, like loves your music and respects, um, you know, this whole project that you're on. But um, it was too 
heartfelt for him to release you know and it's interesting looking to the process too that he made the song you know he went through the whole process of making the song and then to only to erase it as soon as it was finished rather than you know like hold on to it in his spirit or in his mind and just you know go past it like i think a lot of us might think you know i don't want to release that song so just 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 go past it you know just think of the next song and he's like no no i'm gonna make it and then kill it it was like he had to purge it from his body and he was like yes that's out but i don't want anybody else to ever hear it and uh it's says so much and yeah as they were talking as susanna was talking about it in in the book or uh, susan i think is is the yeah the names are very similar but she was talking about you know this idea that yeah he doesn't have that many you know the you know, a lot of albums have at least one of those uh, breakup tearjerkers, you know, that was uh, designed for radio play. And it's it's really not something he did a lot of. And uh, it's always fascinating to think about, you know, the, the song that uh, you never hear or, you know, whole albums and things. And, you know, you mentioned his vault. And uh, I mean, that vault, obviously, the uh, estate is uh, putting things out. And uh, you, you'll never really know what it is that he might have wanted people to hear or if it was really just this idea of like, no, no one will ever hear it, but I need to know what's there. But uh, I guess uh, we'll find out in the, the years to come some of that stuff that's in there. Susan talked a lot about some of the stuff that's in the vault. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily the notion of like, these songs are better than what's in the vault. She was like, there's some really good stuff in the vault he thought a lot about what fits right what are the 10 or 12 or 14 songs or whatever that fit together sonically and you know these are especially in that core period say from dirty mind to the symbol album where he's just crushing it year after year there is a sonic cohesion to the albums right i think the notion of an album is a bit of a lost art right now like most people are sort of like here's the 10 or 12 or 14 songs whatever it is that we worked on in this time they may have different producers they may have different vibes they may take you entirely different directions it's you know almost like it's a greatest hits record you know but like the songs on purple rain would not fit on around the world in a day would not fit on under the cherry moon would you know which would not fit on 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 sign of the times like there's a sonic cohesion to each of those cuz this is what he was thinking about at that time and the songs that did not fit for whatever reason he put in the vault um and he was always like forward 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 so he wouldn't then go back to the vault like somebody else might and like you know reput recontextualize whatever it was just like just just keep going forward keep going forward um it's interesting to me too susan talked about this the speed with which he was recording is faster than we knew i always thought until recently that around the world in the day the response to the fame of purple rain that he's becomes this gigantic star and then around the world in the day is like well here's how i feel about things now that i've become a star no around the world in a day was done and in the can before Purple Rain came out. So it's not a response to, and Susan Rogers sees Around the World in the Day as his last like innocent album because it was the last album he completed before he knew he was a star. So the next album 
uh, uh, under the Terry Moon is very artful and European. <laughs> very right? true. <laughs> right. And now he's like, you know, now I'm a global star. Now I'm an artiste. So look at me now. Right. Um, you know, it, 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 which also, you know, Jerome gave me an amazing nugget. That little song, I Wonder You. Um, I always wondered about that song. It's so weird. A fan in Brazil handed him a note, presumably a person who, you know, speaks mainly Portuguese, very little English, a broken, like, you know, I, I, you know, their attempt to like communicate to him. And he took those lyrics, broken English from a fan and made it into a song. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just extraordinary, you know, I mean, it, you know, makes me think about starfish and coffee. I was just going to mention that that was a great uh, anecdote in there that uh, yeah. it was uh, from from somebody's childhood. It was uh, somebody that uh, they didn't realize, that, you know, that they now know to categorize somebody that was autistic. But in, in those days, you just thought somebody was weird or different yeah. and <laughs> that they would say that they had for breakfast every morning starfish and pee pee. And then he's like, well, I can't sing pee pee. So how about starfish and coffee? Well, Susanna, they, he was dating Susanna. Yeah. And she had told him before the story of this girl who she knows, Cynthia Rose, real name. She knows. I mean, like yeah. you listen to the song and you're like, what is this <laughs> weird, trippy song? Like, was it a dream? Like, what does this mean? No, this is the realest song, uh, perhaps in the whole catalog. Susanna grew up with a girl named Cynthia Rose, who, as you said, now we would understand she's autistic did not use that term or that uh, classification, that understanding in the seventies, um, you know, and she was very OCD would so you know, talk about the number 20 would say, you know, I had for breakfast, starfish and pee pee. When the, the names that Prince uses in terms of the kids who are in line with actual names, Wendy is named in the list of kids who were waiting, that's Wendy Melvoin. Right. Uh, you know, Miss Kathleen was their real teacher. I mean, one of the kids he names, I'm forgetting the name now, was Miss Kathleen's daughter, was in their class, right? I mean, like, it's just all real. Now, where Prince takes license is he changes pee pee to coffee, right? It just makes more sense. Um, and then uh, the butterscotch uh, dream, can, uh, butterscotch clouds, tangerine, and the side order of ham. He added adds that, right? But most of the song, he's he, you know, he he he's about to go record. He says, "Susanna, write down that story about that that weird girl you grew up with. Yeah, write it down for me." And she writes it out, and then he goes down to the studio, and like ten hours later, it's like, "So I made this song for you," and he goes down <laughs> and listens to it, and she's like. Oh my God, like you have put this amazing childhood memory to music. This is amazing. And, you know, more than the times that he would say, I love you, something like that would make her feel loved and feel seen. I am listening to you. I hear you when you talk. The things you say, you know, stay with me. You know, I remembered that story that you've brought up before. And I, you know, and I asked you to, it wasn't like Susanna was like, do a song about this. He was like, tell me that story again. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, just his ability to grab things from any direction and make a song out of it. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, in sort of thinking about what you were talking about, just how prolific he was in recording and this idea that he needed to get songs out, just some of the songs that he basically, well, I mean, he doesn't give them away, but that he does give to other artists. I mean, you know, a song like Manic Monday is such a great song. And then when mm -hmm. you, you know, it's like, well, of course that sounds like a Prince song. And then uh, Nothing Compares to You, you almost get the sense that he regretted that one because of how much he played that song live, you know, after the fact. And I don't know if it had anything to do with, you know, Sinead O'Connor sort of became a very controversial figure. She didn't really perform anymore, but maybe he just wanted the song to be there. I wonder if you ever got a sense from anybody that talked to him, if he ever regretted any of that stuff, you know, I mean, if he's ever like, oh, why didn't I keep Manic Monday? I don't think Prince had regrets. You know, I don't think, you know, <laughs> You're I probably the, right. <laughs> the, the creativity was so much. I mean, like, look, this is not to say that he did not take things back. Um, Kiss is a good example. You know, I mean, like, look, you know, the guy's just like creating. There is a faucet inside him of music. You know, a girlfriend said to me, this is it's like, you know, he's, he sees it as like a gift and a curse. Because it's like, you know, it's just ever flowing. And sometimes you like want it to stop and it will not stop. So, you know, if if even there was the kernel of a notion of regret and nobody ever talked about Prince having regret, but if there was even a kernel of notion, 10 more songs would flow out and like, let's make something out of one of those. But Kiss is an interesting uh, thing. He had some of Kiss done but it wasn't really working out really. And so he kind of gave it to Mark Brown to use for Brown Mark to use for uh, Maserati, the band that he was trying to build up at that time. And Mark worked on it and he added some key sonic elements to it. Um, and then Prince came back and he, and he heard it. And he's like, Whoa, what's that? <laughs> what's what's going on over there? And Mark knew anybody who would know as soon as Prince says, What's that? Then it's like, oh <laughs> and like he kind of like took it back and um and then in like you know and finished it and obviously became you know this, one of his monster hits. Um but yeah, I can't I don't think there's ever any regret because there was a constant desire to like move forward, move forward, move forward. Yeah. And, and that is a huge defining force in this life. Uh, one of the things in reading the book, Nothing Compares to You, An Oral History of Prince, uh, I felt like by the time we were getting towards the end, I started to wonder, I'm like, well, how does Ture get to know Prince? And how does he, you know, in with all these people and how does that happen? But I was glad that it didn't start on page one. You know, let me tell you about me and Prince because People know you. Uh, you. I know you also do a podcast called Who Was Prince, but people are picking up the book because they want to know more about Prince. So I thought it was great that you saved this story towards the end of the book, but it's a great story. It's about you go to interview him and he gives a very, you know, lackadaisical, perfunctory talking point interview. And it's, it's really not good enough. And uh, I, I love how it goes from that to him having, you know, seemingly you know a great time playing basketball with you. Uh, talk about sort of the frustration of getting the prints that uh, you didn't want and then having that turn into uh, actually having, you know, what's probably a, a truly memorable experience in your Absolutely. life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, I got a cover story from a magazine that doesn't exist anymore called Icon. And this was later in Prince's career when most magazines were not giving him covers anymore. Rolling Stone wasn't, Vibe wasn't. And um, there was a junket, you could say, where six or eight of us went out to Paisley Park to get our time interviewing him. And, you know, you were going to get like 30 minutes to interview him in the row of interviewers. Like, so so one person went and everyone else was sort of waiting downstairs. And I remember, you know, we're like sort of hanging around Paisley Park all day. And the journalists would come back from having talked to him like they had had an audience with Jesus. And they were just like, oh, my God, that was amazing. Oh. They had inside the book stories. They needed you know, to fill in for, you know, a thousand words, you know, color and quotes for a thousand word piece. You know, I had a 3000 word, 4000 word cover story requires a lot more than a single 30 minute sit down. Like, you know, I come from Rolling Stone. I'm used to like, you know, we do an hour sit down, plus maybe another plus, you know, like talking throughout three, two or three days you know, plus we're like hanging out. So I get some scenes because I just see you doing your thing. So like, so, okay, you had 30 minutes with Prince in a room. You're good. I'm like, that's not good. And the interview was kind of whack. Um, talked a lot about music. He was hardcore on the masters and slave and like own your own masters thing. And it was like, okay. Like, can we talk about the actual music? Like, yeah, but like the ownership of the music was what's really important. And I'm like, okay, you know, and like, I'm not poo-pooing that subject because that subject is important, especially among black artists, but you hit it. And then you went back to it and back to it and back to it and back to it. And I'm like, oh my God, you're murdering me here. And I got him off the subject <laughs> a little here and there, different things. We talked about the Bulls. The Bulls were um, in the midst of their second three Pete and like everybody in America was a Bulls fan. And, um, you know, we talked about them a little and talked about some other things, but you know, it was, it was talking pointy at times. It was like, you know, what is going on here? There was definitely time. You know, this was also when you could not record. So I don't have a recording of his voice. You couldn't record the interview. So I had to hand write as he was talking. So I missed a lot. I know there are things that he, he spoke in this almost Shakespearean way. I know there were things that he said that I didn't have time to record before they left my short-term memory. I know there were things that I wrote that I recorded faithfully at the time, but later I was like, I, I don't know what this sentence means or what it's, so, you know, so it's a mess. Um, and I was like, you know, and I, I was kind of friendly with the publicist. She's passed away since then but um she was a lovely woman and i was like you know leslie i don't have enough here anymore and she said okay you can email him and you know i don't know why i didn't keep that email but i think this was relatively early days of email the CompuServe was still a thing and it just didn't just never looked at email as permanent if you got a letter from somebody you would like a handwritten you would cherish that yeah, but of course. Like, who saves emails? Like, <laughs> just, 
you know, there's, a, but I got, I, I emailed him 10 questions and he emailed them back and he answered seven of them, which told me to really put stock in the seven he answered because he, there's others that he was like, I'm not answering that. I don't remember the first nine, but the 10th was, will you play basketball with <laughs> And he wrote, anytime, brother. And I was like, oh, you done did it now. <laughs> I'm not going to let this go. you know. And when my photographer went to, uh, to do the uh, photo shoot, I went with him. And I was like, you know, what's up? I'm here. I'm a ball. Don't front. <laughs> was really good. <laughs> and, um, you know, he was so witty at the photo shoot, much more alive and interesting than he'd been in, in the interview. Um, and he was making jokes and he was, he was running this line, like these sort of conspiracy theory lines, but you could tell he's kind of joking probably, but like, you know, this was this was later in Ronald Reagan's life. He wasn't president anymore, but it was later in his life. And you know, the news had come out that he had uh, Alzheimer's. And right. Prince was like, I don't know if I believe that. Uh, they're just trying to shut him up because he knows too much. So he won't say anything. This is kind of conspiracy theory ish, right? Yeah, it's sure. Kind of, kind of funny, and um, you know, and 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 I was kind of like, come on, let's, let's play ball, play ball. Come on, come on, come on. And you know, I'll never forget the moment he turned to his assistant. He's like, because I was just talking shit. I really didn't think <laughs> we were going to play ball. I was like, I'm going to give it my all in terms of asking. But like, you know, and he turned to his assistant and goes, get the bag, of, get the box of sneakers. And I was like, oh, my God, this is happening. <laughs> Holy shit. This is actually going to happen. He, he, he disappeared. We went around the corner and he's rehearsing with the band, black scoop neck top black bell bottom pants black boots we go around the corner together there's a little hoop little basketball hoop and he takes off the boots and he puts on some air force ones and we start balling and now we're playing one-on-one -on -one and he's good through the legs around the back looks like a ball player the way he moves smooth comfortable in the ball court the form he used to me, reminiscent of Steph Curry in terms of like the way his shot looked. Right. Like, looks like an athlete, looks like a ball player, like, looks like I've been here many times. I know what to do with this. And, you know, we're gaming and we're, we're shit talking and we're like, you know, pushing each other. And like, I really wanted to win. And he really, really wanted to win. And like, you know, it was not a comfortable, Shoot him up, you know, shoot around, game a horse. It was like one on one, like defense. Like, I'm really trying to shut you down. He's really trying to like score. And it was fun. And we did that for a good 15, 20 minutes. Um, the score was not very high. You know, I played basketball all my life, but I don't go out and shoot jumpers all the time. So neither of us, you know, were like sharp shooting, even though, you know, this form is good. Um, so then we called his bassist and my photographer and he told the photographer no pictures and we played two on two and it was me and prince and like now we can pass and make cuts and like you know make moves and like it, it was a great game and he was completely aggressive 
in terms of like driving to the hoop and like taking shots and trying to win. Like it was a great, great game. It was crazy. Yeah, and it's uh, it's such a fun story. And then you obviously you talk about how much you appreciate the fact that you you know it almost doesn't matter like what else. It's like well, you got to play basketball with Prince, and uh, I think the timing of where the story appears in the book is very important because uh, look, we all know uh, how sad and tragic the ending of Prince's life really becomes, and you of course need to delve into that in the last few chapters. But at least we sort of get this last sort of reminder of fun Prince. And uh, I have to admit that I didn't know that he'd had a son and I'd never heard about this, uh, th this uh, Pfeiffer syndrome. It is really tough to read. And, uh, you know, having had two kids myself, you and I were talking before uh, we went on the air uh, and, you know, we had some concerns during my wife's second pregnancy. So, uh, yeah. and, you know, when you go to the specialist and they say, well, look, she's going to have a cleft palate and a cleft lip. And you're like, oh, that's it. It's not going to be like her, you know, her heart being in the wrong place, you know, things that you thought might have happened. You're like, great, we can fix that. That's surgery. So to really have sort of this realization that, you know, their son was born and just this terrible level of deformity, uh, it's it's so tragic. And it's obviously you really get the feeling that there was kind of no coming back from that moment. It seems like. He's very different from that point onward, and and I don't think anybody could blame him. No, nobody could could blame him. Uh, yeah, you know, you, to lose a child is uh, they say the most difficult thing that a person can go through, and you know, to have never gotten to know that child can be devastating. Look, you know, he had changed his life in preparation for the child. When I visited Paisley Park, it was after this whole tragedy had happened. Paisley was very colorful. There were, you know, doves and things on the wall. There was a jungle gym in the backyard. Um, you know, he told me that before his wife, Maite, had gotten pregnant, it was just white, right? And so they were preparing for the baby in all these sorts of ways and like just like lightening up the mood of Paisley and everything. And, um, you know, I, I don't imagine that anything could have been done from what the story is. And, you know, I have a story from very, from people who are very close to the situation. But, um, you know, he was, the doctors were saying all along, like, you know, we got to do something. We got to intervene. We got to, like, check out this baby. This, You know, we're not getting good, you know, signs. You know, we don't like some of the things we're seeing. And, um you know, Prince was like, no, God will do whatever God needs. And they're like, um, can we just do our job? And they're like, no, like, you know, God will do whatever needs. And like, <sighs> you know, the, the it was not a shock, uh, you know, when they delivered a baby that was not well. And um they had to pull the plug uh, nine days later, just devastating, heartbreaking, you know. And um, that moment, people have told me, definitely led to the end of his marriage, his first marriage. And I think within all that, there's a searching for meaning in the world, which leads him to become a Jehovah's Witness which also contributes to the end of his marriage um, 
but contributes to some of the direction that he had later in life. I mean, I can only imagine how one would feel after losing a child and just searching for who am I? What is the world? What is going on? Like that's sort of like where he was. And, um, you know, he finds some solace in the church and that sort of carries him through the rest of his life. Yeah, and I think that, uh, you know, there's a, as sad and tragic as that incident is, it's sort of part of the bigger picture that he's not able to create a family and his band family he's dismissed long ago and, you know, he's surrounded himself by some very different people. And so the only real relationship it seems like he has is the music and delivering it to the fans. So that seems like why he falls into the, you know, which you've heard of plenty of people having this exact problem, just the amount of pain that they're in, you know, Michael Jackson couldn't sleep, you know, and uh, unfortunately he got matched up with a, with a doctor that uh, was, was a bad mix for him, but it's the same thing, you know, where you're just like, I can't function. So I need to take this. And, you know, sort of reading about this, that uh, Prince ended up with uh, fentanyl, uh, you know, and it's just, basically days after hearing about the actor michael k williams that uh, that was what his overdose was we like literally heard you know i was like had heard so much about it and then i was reading your book and i was just like i don't even understand how these things how this gets into people's lives but i think that for prince it was really whoever that inner circle was at that point in his life it was well, it was people that didn't seem to really have his best interests in mind people that didn't well, care about him in the right way you know you can't stop an addict from doing their thing. You can't make somebody not an addict. You can't stand in the way of an addict getting their stuff. They'll fight you. They'll go around you. They'll lie to you. They'll sneak around. They'll, they'll cheat. Like, whatever I have to do to get my stuff, you know, if it means running, literally running away from you. So, you know, I would hesitate to blame the folks around him because you know the you can't get off of a drug until you want to the other people around you cannot force you to they can't force you into rehab um i mean like i could literally pick you up and throw you into a facility but if you are not emotionally and intellectually ready to stop being an addict then no rehab program can force you to become an addict, uh, uh, you know, uh, a survivor or person who's not an addict who's not using anymore uh, against your will. You have to want it. And it's a tough road, but you have to want it. If you don't want it, then you have no chance. Um, you know, but the thing, the other part of it I find interesting, you know, that Prince, you know, for so many rock stars, it's this aggressive, hedonistic choice to use whatever it is, cocaine, heroin, marijuana, alcohol, whatever it is. You know, this is part of the hedonism of being a rock star that we party all the time, that we're crazy drunk out of our mind, we're high out of our mind, whatever. That's not what he was doing with opioids. He was saying, you know, performing this music for the people who are my family, the fans, is incredibly important to me. And my hip hurts 
which presumably would also lead to perhaps back and knee pain. I cannot stop. I have to go out there and perform for my people. And I liken it to, you know, the UPS driver, the nurse, you know, the factory worker who's like, I got to get out of bed and go do something to feed my family. I am in severe physical pain, but I got to get out of bed. How do I do that? Mother's little helper, opioids, fentanyl, you know, like take some drugs, take take half a bottle of a leave, or if you can get opioids, take that. This is why we have an opioid crisis in America, you know, not people who are typically abusing other drugs, probably not people who smoke marijuana and then made their way to fentanyl or opioids. No, these are people who are like, I was in pain. The doctor gave me some of this. It relieved my pain and I kept taking it because it feels good. Prince wanted to continue to work. That's why he was taking this drug. And the addictive nature of the drug takes hold of him. And now you have a problem, right? Now we have a problem that we cannot get past. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's crazy to think about somebody from his inner circle called drug rehab specialist and said, we need somebody tomorrow. We like, we have a major problem. And the man who ran the rehab facility in California said, I, I can't be there tomorrow. I have a thing. I can send my son who also does this work. Um, is that be okay? Cause they're like, two days is not enough. We need somebody tomorrow. And so the son said, okay, I'll be there tomorrow. And the son was part of the group of people who found Prince dead in Paisley Park. Um, you know, it's, um, they knew, like, we are flying dangerously close to the sun here. And, you know, we are, we, you know, he is really, really, really sick. And, um, Here we are. Yeah, I mean, it was the idea that uh, they knew that uh, two days was going to be too long, and they figured that uh, the next day was okay. When in hindsight, it's easy to be like, "Well, it was actually right now." And then, you know, letting it get to that point, uh, obviously, people don't really know. But I, I think that you do make the point in the book of what you just said. You know, first of all, there's any, there's no addict that you can get to stop if they don't want to. But you also mix that with the fact that you weren't going to tell Prince to do something that he didn't want to do. So, you know, that's what his whole life had basically been. And it was, uh, it was obviously uh, so sad when it happened, there was such an uh, outpouring and uh, you know, the, the tributes uh, that was in early 2016. And uh, you know, there was, uh, there was, I, I remember that there was uh, that the, uh, Bruce Springsteen was on tour and he did purple rain and there were so many like bad cell phone bootlegs of it that they released an official video because, uh, you know, that was, it was just like, well, no, if you're going to hear it, like hear it the way that he actually played it. And just, you know, so many people that he meant so much to, uh, it, it really is a sad ending to the book. Uh, but the final thing I'll talk about is something that's a little bit more, uh, lighthearted is you talked about how he became a Jehovah's witness later in his life. This idea that Prince would go door to door to talk to people about, you know, we've had them show up at our house. You know, we all have. <laughs> and what if that person was Prince? You know, the idea is like, 
I think I saw this Jehovah's Witnesses ass on the MTV Awards. <laughs> you know, it, that's it, it, it's just uh, you know, and he wasn't there as Prince, but just the idea that you could open the door and Prince was there just uh, it, it made me laugh to think about. You know. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think you have to look at it in the context of Minneapolis. Um, yeah. You know, he takes uh, being a witness very seriously. So he went through all the things. He's proselytizing. But he, you know, had grown up and lived in Minneapolis all his life. And he was by far the biggest star in the area. So people are seeing him around. They see his mother, <laughs> his father, his sister around like... You know, I imagine it, you know, it's a small town. So I imagine if he's knocking on your door in Minneapolis, you're like, oh, okay. Like, it's not like the shock. Like, if he knocked on your door, yeah, or my door in New York, you're you're in Cali. Like, yeah, right. Like, Whoa, never expected <laughs> this. But like, if you live in a small town, and you see this guy zipping around in his BMW or, you know, you pass Paisley Park or, you know, you you know, you see him walking down the street or whatever, like, you know, him knocking at your door is it's not the same level of shock that yeah. we're thinking it might be if, you know, if out of the blue Prince knocked on our door. Um, <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. Part of that community his whole life. No, absolutely. And there's uh, also a funny story uh, in the book from late in his career, you know, when he's well established as Prince, where he goes into a hardware store and it's, uh, you know, it's like you used to see the the commercials for kids that would win a shopping spree at Toys R Us. So I imagine Prince like running around like we need all this stuff and it was none of it he actually needed. So uh, I love how many uh, light moments there are. And just overall, I really enjoyed the book. Uh, obviously, you had access to some great people who really knew him. And while I was reading the book, Nothing Compares to You, An Oral History of Prince, I had an excuse to uh, just be listening to Prince music in my earbuds the whole time. I felt like it was going to put me in the right mood. And uh, there are no shortage of uh, complete live concerts out there that uh, I was able to uh, sit with, you know, uh, going all the way back to 1981. And uh, I know in the book you talk about uh, going to, a, a, I used to live in New York and you saw like a, one of those small late after shows at a place called tramps that i've been to a dozen times and uh i can only imagine you know getting to see somebody like prince in one of those small settings uh but i guess that doesn't compare to playing basketball with him <laughs> no but the small the small the small shows were divine because you stripped down you know it was just you know not the artifice not there was not that there was that much artifice in his real shows there was pageantry but not you know but like just it'd be like just a man and guitar, you know, which is why yeah. I like the, the, the piano and a keyboard stuff later in his life. Um, Cause it's like, just, just him and a musician, you know, um, that's why, um, how come you don't call me anymore? It's one of my favorite songs of his. Cause it's like, it's just him and a uh, piano. You know, uh, and, and I was going to finish, but I was just thinking about this really quick. You know, you're talking about uh, there's that period when you saw him at Tramps is he wasn't playing some of the some of the let's just say some of the naughtier stuff. You know, he wasn't going to play like head and sister and stuff like that anymore. Yeah. Uh, and I always uh, thought one of his best songs that wasn't a hit was the song Pussy Control, because I just think it's like such this like epic storytelling in there. Uh, did he ever come back around to any of that stuff or did it stay kind of, and, and I know Pussy Control is a much later song, but 
did that stuff kind of stay in the past and, and, you know, did he, or did he every once in a while feel like, you know what, maybe, uh, maybe it's all right to play head once in a while. Uh, I, I think he moved on. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think he moved on from some of that stuff. He, he wanted to be, you know, move forward, move forward, move forward, you know, yeah, well, that's I guess that's what the uh, you know Prince tribute bands are for. So that if you want to if you want to be the the 1981 Prince tribute band or the you know Purple Rain tribute band. Anyway, Teray, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I really enjoyed talking to you, and uh, the book's fantastic. Uh, Teray's book again, nothing compares to you: an oral history of Prince. And uh, I did mention earlier that you have a, a podcast about Prince. It's called Who Was Prince? Correct. Yes, thank you. Yes, absolutely. It's a, and uh, it's an eight-episode docu series about him. Yeah, and uh, if uh, people want to keep in touch with you, I'm sure you're on all the social media. Uh, yes, at, at Torre on Twitter, at Torre Show on Instagram. Well, again, Torre, thank you so much for your time, and uh, it's a really tremendous book, and I hope uh, that uh, even people with a casual uh, appreciation and just wanting to know more about Prince, I think they'll really get a lot out of it. So, again, nothing compares to you in oral history of Prince. Thanks so much, Torre. Thank you. Thanks again to Ray. Great chatting with him, and I highly recommend the book, Nothing Compares to You, an Oral History of Prince. As always... You can keep in touch with the show by following me on Twitter and Instagram at Christian DMZ. Also, go ahead and like the Blackcast on Facebook. Follow at Blackcast on Twitter. And please subscribe to the Blackcast YouTube channel for video versions of great content like the interview that you just heard. Now, be sure to come back tomorrow when we have two great musician interviews. Kelly Kigi of Night Ranger and Damon Johnson making a turn visit. That'll be next time on The Blackcast. talk about how like anything he tackled that shyness on the stage by just really studying what what have other front men and lead singers done and how do i learn from them okay um one second can is this going to be edited it can be sure yeah the audio version can definitely be edited yeah okay i am i am told that somebody is at the door that i need to sign something okay right now. that's okay
Can I pause for like 60 That's seconds? absolutely. You go ahead and uh, sign, and uh, uh, I'll just ask. I'll just re-ask the question. Don't worry about it. Uh, for people that are watching live right now, Therese's book, uh, Nothing Compares to You, An Oral History of Prince, is now available. And Therese has uh, also uh, started a podcast. I believe it's called Who Was Prince, which uh, you can find two episodes a week, I believe. Or at the very least, it's a weekly episode, uh, and you'll be able to find that. In addition to, uh, he's also written another book about Prince called I Would Die For You, and his name is spelled T-O-U-R-E. There's a little accent over the E, and that's where you would be able to find all of his books. And uh, we'll rejoin our conversation in a moment, but uh, look, when packages show up, they got to be signed for sometimes. And hopefully it's a good package. You know, uh, I've, I find that they just tend to leave packages for me, you know, on the step. Uh, but uh, every once in a while, there's something that's like, nope, you got to sign. So they keep knocking. And if you want to keep in touch with the show, you can like the Blackcast on Facebook. Go ahead and follow us on Twitter, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. And of course, your one-stop shop for our video and audio links is Blackcast.com. B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. And you can go to the Blackcast YouTube channel and find this show, the titular Blackcast. And we also have our other show, Marvel Movie Talk, which we do every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific. That's 2 p.m. Eastern at this point, this stage of the game. That's where you find that. And we have our political show, which is now called Biden Time. And many, many interviews on the Blackcast YouTube channel, just like this one. So, no, no worries. Uh, I I hope it's uh, I hope it was a good package. You know, <laughs> they're usually not though. <laughs> but uh, in terms of the uh, question I was saying earlier, you know, there's this shyness he has for performing, and he has this really awkward interview with Dick Clark on American Bandstand, and so then he realizes that what he really needs to do, as great as he is as a musician, he has to tap into that showman part. But talk about, like I was saying he handles this the way he does everything. And he, he sits and watches video and studies what other front men and lead singers, you know, from everybody from Jim Morrison to Dolly Parton, uh, you know, what they did. So talk a little bit about that and how that was something he really needed to overcome if he was going to become the rock star he wanted to be. I mean, Des Dickerson in particular talks about this in that Prince had the humility to understand what am I not doing the best of my ability okay, let me can we pause yeah no i was about to say i know uh, you need to go get uh you need to uh run out and uh not sign for another package but uh so yeah uh we can uh we'll take a little break and uh people will be able to watch part two of the interview and then the audio version will be all uh put together uh, so uh, just subscribe to our YouTube channel, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T, and uh, you'll be notified when uh, part two is coming up a little bit later. And uh, Ture, hang on a second. I'm going to click off the broadcast and we'll figure out the logistics.